Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We continue in Proverbs today in our call to confession from Proverbs 28, verse 22. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Here Solomon shows that greed will distort your vision. A person with a heart that is in a rush for affluence will see everything as a means for gain. He is frustrated by just an ordinary job and is discontent with ordinary wages. He believes he deserves better. He envies successful men and covets what they have. He believes others owe him. This greed for gain perverts his vision. He measures others by how much he might gain by them from them rather than how they might gain from his service to them. Their selfish race for prosperity does not satisfy and, as the proverb tells us, will result in poverty coming upon them. In contrast, a wise man is content with his wages and lets God make him rich. He manages his money carefully, knowing that he is only a steward of what God has entrusted to him. Knowing this, he patiently saves, exercises contentment, spends and gives charitably all in faith. Generous men have a good eye. They see life's priorities correctly, as shown in Proverbs 22. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. This reminds us of our own need to confess our sins. Please kneel with me if you're willing and able. Greetings to you this Lord's Day from your brothers and sisters in Christ at Cornerstone. It's always a joy to be with you and to bring God's Word to you. Back in the summer of 1982, Larry Walters decided to use his imagination to create a little adventure in his life. Larry was a 33-year-old truck driver who wondered if he could get a lawn chair to somehow fly. So he inflated 42 weather balloons with helium and attach them to a lawn chair that he bought. He brought along a pellet gun to shoot out a few balloons if he flew too high, and he lifted off on July 2nd from San Pedro, California. To his amazement, Larry reached an elevation of 16,000 feet very quickly. He wasn't the only one to be amazed. Surprised pilots reported seeing some guy in a lawn chair floating in the sky. The air traffic controllers thought it was a joke, but the calls kept coming in. Finally, Larry had enough sense to start shooting a few balloons, and he landed safely in Long Beach 45 minutes later. Perhaps I need to issue a disclaimer. You shouldn't try this one at home. I'd like you to use your imaginations this morning, though, as we look at our text here in Isaiah 44. It very much is related 
to the theme of Palm Sunday, when the Lord rode into Jerusalem and the people praised and lauded him as their king, and yet when he didn't live up to their expectations, a few days later, they were crying out, crucify him. So as we put on our imagination caps, let's try to imagine two young people, a young boy and a young girl, and they either go to Nebuchadnezzar University or South Babylon High School. It's the 6th century before Christ. The Israelites are in exile over in Babylon. And these young people come home at night, and their father puts on his black cap and he reads from the Torah. And he talks about Jehovah, and he prays to Jehovah. And he mentions the great things that Jehovah used to do. You know, he shares with him about Moses dividing the sea and Joshua dividing the river. The walls of Jericho collapsing. But Jehovah hasn't done much lately. And these young people go to school in Babylon and they hear about Baal, the god of the Babylonians. And wow, is he a god. You can see him, a great big idol made of gold. Not only that, but it seems to pay off to worship Baal. The Babylonians always win. Isaiah approaches these two young people and he says, before you make up your mind as to which God you will serve, I'd like you to go with me to three different shops, three different locations. And then after you've visited those places with me, then make up your mind. So they agree. And Isaiah says, let's first of all go to a blacksmith shop. And so in verse 12, we read, the blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. How many of you have ever seen a blacksmith working? Perhaps you've been to Greenfield Village or some other place where you've been able to to observe what's going on there, uh, where the man with usually strong arms taking a piece of misshapen metal and and, and by that artistry of his arms and elbows and hands, he makes something useful and sometimes even something beautiful. And it's a lot of work to be a blacksmith. He has long hours and he works hard. And he pours all of his strength into that piece of metal. And that piece of metal is what he is able to make it. If he's a good blacksmith, then it will be something useful and good. If he's not such a good blacksmith, it will be something that's useless. It all depends on the blacksmith. And the blacksmith takes the iron and he puts it into the fire and first it gets red hot and then he waits a while longer and it gets white hot and then he he puts it onto the anvil and he pounds and he pounds and he pounds away and then he looks at it and he says, well, it's not quite ready yet and so back into the fire it goes and it glows red hot then white hot, and he takes it out and back on the anvil and he hammers again. Minutes pass, hours pass. Finally, at the end of the day, he's been so intent on this that he has not stopped to eat. He's been so anxious to get this finished, he hasn't even stopped to drink. So he's hungry and he's thirsty and he's weary because he's trying to make something that is useful and worthwhile. What is he making? Isaiah tells us he's making Baal, 
the God of the Babylonians. And Baal will be just as good as the man is a blacksmith. Well, Isaiah says, let's, let's take another visit now. Let's go to the carpenter's shop in verse 13. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, so that it may dwell in a shrine, in a house. The idea is that people are going to come down and buy this object. And so it has to have a certain look. It's, it's going to be in, in the living room of the house. And, and people are going to come into the living room and they're going to admire it and say, my, that's a beautiful piece of furniture. Where did you get it? And oh, I got it from so-and-so. And so the carpenter has to make it so that people will want it in their living room uh, to show it off to everyone else. It takes a long time for a carpenter to, to make something, and it takes a great deal of skill, and it takes a certain amount of mathematical ability. And it requires a certain steadiness of hand as he works with the plane and as he measures with the measuring line and as he outlines it with the compass. And it takes a certain aesthetic ability as he tries to produce out of a hunk of wood Baal, the god of the Babylonians. And Baal will be just as good as the carpenter has skill. And the people will like it if the carpenter has succeeded in making it beautiful. Isaiah says, we've got one more stop. He says, we're going to go down to the lumber yard. We're going down to the lumber yard in verse 14. It says, the lumberman cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the pines of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. So let's get the idea here. Here's a man who has the care of trees. And he takes care of those trees from the very first time, such as they developed from the small shoots, all the way up until that time in in his wisdom that he decides that they're ready to be cut down. And so you get the picture. Year after year, the lumberman comes out to various, uh, examine the various trees. I used to live in Switzerland years ago, and and I lived up on on the side of a a large, I guess you call it a low mountain. And um, it was low enough so that there were trees, forests on the top. And there were professional lumbermen who were there every day of the work week. They were examining the trees, they were cultivating around them, they were spraying them, and then when they decided that they were ready, then came the time to actually fell the trees. And so the idea is that the the lumberman comes out and he examines the trees and and he'll say, well, not not ready yet, maybe a few more years to grow, Uh, let's hope we get good rain, and if we get good rain then the trees will grow and and they'll become strong, so let's wait for now. Wait for what? Wait until the tree is good enough to be a god. You see, it takes a, it takes a while to grow a god. It, god. Gods don't come easily. You, you've got to put skill into gods. You've got to put your intelligence into gods. And, and you've got to, to bring all of science and technology into gods. Or else you might not have a god that's respectable. And so you wait, and you wait patiently, and the trees grow, and the trees become strong. And then finally the day comes, and in the knowledge of the lumberman, he says, let's cut it down. And so we hear the cry, timber, 
and the tree falls to the ground. Well, Isaiah continues in verse 15. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. So we chop the tree down. And then we cut it into logs. And then we're going to put the logs into three piles. So over here we have this first pile which is for heating. Pile number one. And, uh, and so that's going to heat the house. And then uh, pile number two, that's going to be to heat the oven so that we can bake bread and for roasting meat, if, we, if there's meat to, to be roasted. And uh, what are we going to do now with this third pile over there? I know. Let's make a god out of this pile. Okay, that's, that's what's going on. Now, why did I choose this pile uh, for the house and this one for the oven and this one for the god? I mean, could I... Switched it around, maybe use this one for uh, the house, and uh, this one over here uh, for the god, and this one over here for the oven. You see, it really doesn't make any difference. But Baal becomes who I decide Baal shall be. So here's the question this morning. Aren't you impressed with Baal? You know, the Bible rarely uses sarcasm. But here is one place where Isaiah really lets the people have it. In verse 16, he says, Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. This is Baal. This is the god of the Babylonians. And King Nebuchadnezzar thought it was Baal who was making him strong. And the Babylonian soldiers thought that when they were victorious, it was Baal that was making them victorious. The prophets Jeremiah and Daniel had a very different story. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar was just a rod in the hand of God. And he was being used for a certain amount of time in history to chasten God's people. But his day was coming. Well, Isaiah begins to preach in verse 18. And he turns to these two young people, as we're still imagining, and he says, you know, I want to make this crystal clear. They don't know. These Babylonians, or even the Israelites who have been pulled into believing in this Babylonian God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. Who has done this? Has Baal done this? No. What can a hunk of wood do? Do you think maybe an iron god could blind you or a hunk of wood plaster over your eyes? No. These people have determined, that is the Babylonians, and any Israelites that might be following them, they have determined that they would not believe in the living and true God. They say, we will have no part of him. And so God responds, and he says, all right, then you won't, and you won't. And God says through Isaiah, I have smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their minds so that they cannot understand. So Isaiah continues his sermon to these young people, and in verse 19 he says, No one stops to think 
No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its goals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? You see, they couldn't figure it out. Well, the sermon stops for a moment and the two young people respond and they say, well, Isaiah, when you put it that way, it's pretty stupid. And Isaiah says, yes, but it's more than stupid. It's downright sinful. And so Isaiah continues in verse 20. This person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? What's in his right hand? Baal. What is Isaiah saying? That Baal's a lie. Why is Baal a lie? Because he's claiming to be something that he isn't. What is God? What does God tell us? God is a God who's a very present help in time of trouble. Can Baal help? No, not at all. He's a lie. And then Isaiah turns to these young people and he gets a bit poetic in verse 21. He says, Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have formed you. I have formed you. Do you see the difference? There are two different types of gods in the world. Some God that you and I make, or else the God that made you. And the God that you make is a lie. He's a lie because he cannot help you. If we read on in chapters 48 and 49 how Isaiah describes the fleeing of the Babylonians when the Persians attack, we find that they put the, uh, the god Baal on a cart, the statue, and somebody had to go along and prop up Baal. Uh, because in their hurry going over the bumpy roads, poor Baal's going to fall out of the cart. You've got to prop him up because, after all, he's our God and he's, he's the best, best thing we've got. So Isaiah says, remember these things, O Jacob. You're tempted to go after gods, of course. And today you and I are surrounded by temptations on every side to disbelieve the scriptures. We're told Jesus Christ is just a man. We're told to deny the miracles and the supernatural. We're tempted to believe that we don't need a savior. To refuse to believe that he rose from the dead, that he's coming again, that there will be a harvest, that his resurrection is just the first fruits and ours is yet to come. We are surrounded with temptations to deny these things. And Isaiah says, before you make up your mind, make one thing clear. Either you worship a God that you make or else you worship the God who made you. And between those two, there is no third option. He says, I have made you. You are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. Well, you say, okay, we've had a bit of ancient history this morning, 15 minutes of cultural anthropology, an interesting study in comparative religions, But what does that have to do with me today in 2017? After all, we live in the New Testament times. We don't have problems with idols. But John makes it very clear in the last verse of his first letter, as he writes to Christians, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Little children. Those are John's words for you and me. And he says, keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because you and I are constantly manufacturing false gods. Think about it. Maybe you manufactured one just this past week. You thought about a false god because last week something happened and you thought to yourself, I guess God doesn't care. And then you immediately took matters into your own hands and by doing so you did some fancy idol worship. Now what God said, I don't care. Some God that you made. Because Peter says about the God who made you and me, cast all your burdens upon him because he cares for you. Well, maybe you said, okay, well, he cares, but he cannot help. He's up there, and, and he cares, but he can't help me. He can't help me to get out of this mess that I'm in. But then we have to stop and ask ourselves, what God cannot help you? Only some God that you made. Or you say, well, things are a little too complicated today. You know, the Bible's all 2 plus 2 equals 4, but... This is 2017 and we're up in calculus now and trigonometry and the Bible is just not that relevant. I mean, we're, we're coping with cancer and, and HIV and AIDS and we're coping with divorce and financial stress and terrorism. And, and then God breaks in and says, who said that? Some God that you made. Because the writer of the Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. Or maybe sometime last week you were tempted and you said, well, I, actually I think I can get away with it. It won't happen to me. I won't get caught. Besides, I'm, I'm a member of Christ Church of Livingston County and so I'm special. I have special rights. I'll get a pass. But you see, when, when you and I say, if I sin, there won't be any consequences or at least not this time, then we're saying some God that we made is in charge of the world. Because the God who is really in charge of the world, the God that made you and me, is a holy God. And the very people that Isaiah was prophesying to were people who learned a bitter lesson. They had to learn the hard way that you cannot get away with sin. Because God is a righteous God. And the only way that you can get away with sin is to repent of it and to claim that forgiveness that is promised to you and me in the gospel. And, that, and to claim that righteousness for which Jesus Christ gave his own blood. Well, I could go on with other examples, but it would be impossible to list all the gods that you and I are capable of creating. Someone has said that in, Hind in uh, India... In the Hindu religion, there are over 330 million gods. Others would say that's not entirely accurate. They are only 330 million manifestations of the one God. Either way, it shows the capacity of the human mind and imagination to create gods. And it shows the capacity to which you and I are subject to not being faithful to thinking God's thoughts after him and of not being sure that the God that we worship is the God who made us. Well, Isaiah finishes his sermon in the 22nd and 23rd verses 
And God says, I have swept away your offenses like a thick cloud and your sins like the morning mist. Have you ever been up in a plane and unable to see the landscape because of a thick cloud below you? What a wonderful lesson that the God who made you and me has blotted out our sins through Jesus Christ just like a thick cloud so that you can't see them. Well, perhaps you say, well, then how come they keep coming back to haunt me? Well, one thing you can be sure of, they certainly don't come back to haunt God because he has blocked them out like a thick cloud. And if they come back to haunt you, it's because you're worshiping some God that you made. Because the God who made you says they are gone. In verse 22, he says, Return to me, for I've redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. He's calling on all nature and every part of nature to rejoice. And he says, For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. That's why we're here today. Because God is determined to show his glory in us and through us. What God? Not some God that you make. He's a lie and he's helpless. He's no better than you're able to dream up. But the God who made you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of Israel, he calls you and me to worship him. And to those of us who worship him, he says, remember, I want you to mount up with wings like eagles. You remember the words at the end of Isaiah 40. He says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You know, when the gale winds blow and all the other birds hide in the clefts of the rock, so that they won't be smashed to pieces. The eagle does something altogether different. It simply extends its wings, and those same storm winds bear it up higher and higher and higher. And that is the picture that God gives to you and me of the strength that he wants to pour into us as we rely upon him. He says, those that wait on the Lord. On who? The God who made you. And he says, everything that comes into their lives drives them higher. And if you can find another God who can do that for you, then you worship him. Go down to the blacksmith's shop or to the carpenter's shop and pick him out. But the truth is that the one true living God is alone the God of the universe. He alone is worthy of our trust, of our love, of our worship, and of our obedience. Someone said something just last week to me that I keep mulling over and over in my mind. And that was that so often we have an expectation in our own minds of how God should act. And when he doesn't act that way, then we're disappointed in him or we're angry with him. Just as the people there in Jerusalem were when Jesus rode in and then began acting in a way that didn't meet with their expectations. And this person said to me, you know, when we find ourselves disappointed with God, 
we need to first stop and ask ourselves the important question. Isn't that disappointment a sign that I have wrong expectations of God? And I thought that's right in line with what we're talking about this morning. When I'm disappointed in God, because he doesn't act the way I want, I have to stop and remind myself, I'm disappointed in the God that I made, rather than the God that made me. May the Lord bless you this holy week, as we think not only of his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, but all that happened after that, and see ourselves in the faces of the crowd and those gathered around the cross, that we can greatly appreciate the amazing cost of our salvation so that we can rejoice next Easter Sunday in the fact that God keeps his promises and the same one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise us up as well as we put our trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you are the one true God, worthy of our trust, worthy of our love and our obedience. Forgive us for all the times in which we create a false God, an idol in our minds. And help us instead to spend that time in your word to be reminded over and over again of the God that you are, that we may serve you and be a delight to you and may be those who rise up even as the eagle does as we put our trust in you. For we ask that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who taught us to pray together. that we glory in Christ. We glory in what he has given to us. We glory in the fact that we have nothing and he had everything. He came and sacrificed everything so that he might give us everything. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Therefore let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This Thanksgiving meal is based on the fact that we are members of Christ. We have been invited in and are asked to participate here. In Christ, everything is now yours, the world and all it contains. Christ owns the world, for he purchased it with his blood, and we are in Christ. We are saying many things as we partake in the Lord's table, and this is but one of them, that in Christ we have been given everything, and this is one of them. By faith, let us live in light of this fact. And so I welcome you, come to the table that Christ has prepared for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, 
ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.